6.22. Let's go ahead and pray here as uh, we get started. And before we pray, I just want to make sure everybody knows, I don't know if Renee got a chance to mention during announcements, but you see flowers in the back there. You see flowers here. Uh, that's left over from uh, Steve Baker's funeral. Uh, Steve Baker that's worshipped out here with us for years. He passed away uh, early Wednesday. So continue to keep uh, Steve's family in prayer, especially uh, Paula, his wife, and just continue to keep the Baker family in prayer. So let's pray. Lord, as we just come to you now, uh, we do pray that, that the God of comfort is truly with Paula and family, that they may just know you and your comfort during this time of loss. And we say thank you for the years of Steve's life. Right now, Lord, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears to not only talk about this, to not just hear it, but to really live it out in all we say and do and have ears to hear what you're saying this morning in your name. Amen. You've heard me mention the last few weeks in our study here through Acts, starting in Acts 21. It starts a story that continues for the next seven chapters. If time would permit, it would be great to do all seven chapters at once to get the full story. But it doesn't work out that way. You have to stop and kind of break it up a little bit. It goes back to where Paul was prophesied over that he was going to be taken in chains, bound to Jerusalem and Rome. And he was going to be put on trial. And as they come and warned him of this, he said, it's okay, I've given my life completely over to the Lord, that it is no longer my life, but his, I'm dead to this. And so therefore, if the Lord wants to use that, let him use it. I heard a great teaching this week on the life of Paul, and the pastor summed it up like this. He goes, how do you deal with Paul? You tell Paul you're going to kill him, and he says, to die is gain. You tell Paul, fine, I'm going to let you live. He goes, to live is Christ. Paul, we're going to beat you. Then that means I get more eternal rewards. You can't win with Paul. When you realize that your life is not your life, it's completely the Lord's, and you give it all over to him, whatever comes your way, you stop and you say, God, it's for you and your glory. So Paul says, I'm going to be arrested and bound in Jerusalem and taken to Rome, then glory be to God. And that's exactly what happens. In Acts chapter 21, he shows up at the church in Jerusalem. After finishing his third missionary journey, he goes into the temple. And as he goes into the temple, the mob comes around him for many different reasons. They thought he was bringing Gentiles into the temple. We talked about this last week. And they thought he was going to defame the temple. So the Roman soldiers have to come and they have to literally rescue Paul. Just remind ourselves, look at verse 31 of Acts 21. Now as they were seeking to kill him, News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And we showed you that picture last week of how there was a Roman garrison of troops right by the temple. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. That's where we left off last week. The idea of this mob wanted to kill Paul. This mob was beating Paul. And as we mentioned, Paul now says, can I talk to them? That's amazing. Not can I run to the safety of the garrison. Not can hundreds of Roman soldiers keep me safe. But I have an opportunity here now to spread the gospel. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's what he does in Acts 22. Now, before we actually get to this idea of Paul sharing his faith, we're going to build to this point. There's some other things I want to say first. Can you go with me to Luke chapter 3, please? Luke 3. Sharing your faith is part of your Christian walk with the Lord. A lot of times people come up to me and they ask me, okay, I'm a Christian or I think I'm a Christian. What does it look like? What am I supposed to be doing? We kind of live in this world where we like little ranks and levels. We like games where you level up and you got visible progress. This is how good I've done. And I've seen discipleship programs like that as well too. 
where you complete book one, and then you go to book two, and then you go to book three. That's not necessarily bad. There's good information in those books. But they carry almost this assumption that since you've completed book one, you have now gone up a couple levels in your walk with the Lord. And now you've completed book two. And so now you're going deeper in the Lord. And I've seen people complete book one, and they're still the same. Sure, they may have some more head knowledge, but their life hasn't changed. Sure, they may have learned a few more verses, but where's the lifestyle change? We have to really stop and say, what does it look like to live for Jesus Christ? What does it really look like? Now, when we teach this, I'm not teaching some type of legalism. I'm not teaching some type of works-based salvation. And I'm not teaching a list of have-tos. I am sharing the words of the Lord and the words of the Bible that says, this is what it actually looks like. If, if you want to know where you're at in your walk with the Lord, it's kind of interesting that God gives you little examples and little tests throughout scriptures to stop and say, hey, are you doing these things? Because if you're doing these things, this is what a believer does. The natural reaction to the supernatural salvation you have is your lifestyle changes, and this is what we see happening. So with that being said, let's go through this together, and let's ask ourselves some questions. So in John 3... We have the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is sent before Jesus to prepare people for the coming Messiah. John, excuse me, Luke 3, verse 7. Then he said, did I say John 3? Yeah, okay. I was testing you to see if you were paying attention. Luke 3, verse 7. Luke 3, verse 7. Then he, John the Baptist, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That's a great way to start a message. I'm just telling you right now. I'm waiting for the Lord to lead me to start a message one time looking at you guys saying, you brood of vipers. You know, it just hasn't happened yet. But, John, I mean, think about this. This huge group of people are now showing up to the ministry of John the Baptist. And he starts out by saying, brood of vipers. Who warned you to come here? What are you running from? Verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's the first thing he says. Let your life change. Now, not let your life change to save you. Not let your life change because some legalistic have to. Let your life change because you have been supernaturally changed by what Jesus Christ has done for you. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, we're going to get to that. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Don't just rest on the fact that you're Jewish, that you're in. No, we don't deal with that today. We rest in other facts, don't we? I was just talking to someone this week, and the subject came up of salvation. And when the subject came up of if they're saved, their response was this. I was baptized as a baby. I went through catechism. I went through confirmation. I went through communion. Now, are those things bad? No, those things aren't bad. Those are good in those things. But if you're trusting on that to be salvation, then that's bad. If you're trusting on that to be some type of religious hoop that you've jumped through, that's bad. So... Don't trust in the fact that you're just Jewish. Verse 9, And now even the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So now he's saying, I want to see some fruit. And let me repeat this to the point of almost annoyance. Not fruit, not works to be saved. Not fruit, not works. So some type of legalism, but because of what Jesus Christ did in your life. Now the question is, what does that look like? Verse 10, so the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? Here we go. Verse 11, He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. All righty, I can do that. I give away my food and I I give away my clothes. I love Jesus. Well, no. Is it literally saying that's what you have to do? No, it's saying you have a heart of generosity. 
It's saying that you have a heart where you're not looking at building up your little kingdom and treasures on this earth and you're looking more towards eternity. You're stopping and looking, do I really need more fill in the blank? Now, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. There's very, very few things that we actually need. There's a lot of things we want. There's a lot of things where the want we can disguise as a need. There's very few things that we actually need. And God is asking you, are you going to be generous with what I've given you? Because it's all his anyway. Now, is this some type of plug for the garage sale giveaway? No, it just happens to be the same week as the garage sale giveaway. But we got to be careful, too, because as we like to mention out with the garage sale giveaway, the purpose of the garage sale giveaway is not the items. The purpose is to have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. See, a lot of times what happens with, with giveaways, and I'm not picking on anybody, it's just as this. Uh, I'm going to give away my, my couch. I'm going to give away my love seat. Why? Because I just got a brand new one. And someone will be blessed by my used one. Or I go through my winter clothes and I realize maybe I've gained a few pounds. So these jeans are really nice. I can't fit them anymore. So somebody will be blessed. It's not that we're sitting there saying, oh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, lead me and guide me. It's like, yeah, I really don't have a use for this anymore. So is that wrong? Well, no, somebody can be blessed by that. But verse 11 is really just trying to teach you, wait a second here. Do we actually go through life thinking, is this a need? Is this a want? Am I generous? Do I really realize that whatever I have is a blessing from the Lord, and therefore, how can I use that to give away to somebody else? Because I just really don't need it. Food, how can we give that away? Once again, and I don't mean to step on anybody's toes when I say this, we're, we're really not living in an area where people are starving to death here in Northwest Ohio. They're not. They're not. Do they have food? Yeah, they have food. Could they use some more, maybe more nutritious? Sure. But to the fact of literally no food, no. So how do you handle that? I can only share, you know, I've shared this before, what Dawn and I do. If we see somebody staying outside Walmart and they got a sign, we'll work for food or something like that. We'll go get them a gift card to a local fast food restaurant. We'll go, we'll give it to them. Then we'll stop it. We'll talk to them. Pray with them. Give this to you in the name of Jesus. What can we do here? It's great to give in verse 11. If you've got two tunics, give them one. If you've got two coats, give them one. you got the extra, do it. But I'm also telling you, verse 11, I believe, is teaching us to also go deeper. Do we truly live with a generous heart and spirit to stop and say, why am I building up my kingdom and treasures here when really my life is just a path towards physical death that's going to take me into eternity? That's what I want to live for. Verse 12, then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. You've got to know a little bit of Bible here. Tax collectors, the way tax collectors made money back during Bible times is pretty simple. If the person owed $100, the tax collector would show up at your house and say, you owe 200 And whatever he made over what was owed, he got to keep. So that's why John is saying to them right there, verse 13, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Well, what is really verse 13 saying? Don't be greedy. We constantly live in this world of greed. I want more money to buy more stuff so I can have more things. I want more money to keep the stuff that I have to make the payments on. I want more of this. I want more of that. There's always something new and more and exciting and flashy. There's this game that the boys like to play, and they really like this one aspect of it. And we kind of got this rule at the house. We're not going to put money into a game because in just the next week, they're going to come out with something new and flashy just as well. That's how they get you. And it's like we always want the new thing. So verse 13, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Don't walk in greed. Don't walk in that desire of wanting more. It's back to that eternal mindset of treasures in heaven. 
Verse 14, likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, once again, you got to know a little bit of New Testament here. The tax collector shows up at your house and says, I want $200. And you think, I only owe 100 And you look at that little tax collector and you say, I'm not doing it. Guess what the tax collector does? He goes back and he gets two Roman soldiers to come back with him. And he says, you owe me $200. And what he says is, Roman soldier one, you get 25 Roman soldier two, you get 25 And now I take 50 This is how they did this. And so he's telling the soldiers there, do not intimidate anyone. Don't bully. I tell you, sometimes as believers, we have been touched by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to be walking in peace and love. Sometimes people that claim to be Christians are the most difficult people to be around. I don't get that. There should be a joy and a peace and a love, and sometimes we come across as spiritual bullies. And that's what they were doing 2,000 years ago. They were going to intimidate to get something. You know, when we were down in Mexico a few weeks ago, and uh, as we were driving around, driving in Mexico is a very unique thing. I know some of you have been down there. You have done that. And you know what I'm talking about. Words can't describe what it's like to drive down there. It's its own little bird. But as we were driving there and going through stuff, you know, we were told, hey, if you ever get pulled over, um, the cop's going to come. I'm going to want to write you a ticket. And really what they want is just, you know, give them five bucks, give them ten bucks. And that's really what it is, and everything is done and move on. And that's just kind of how the system is done down there. You show up, you get pulled over, okay, yeah, okay, here's the money, let's move on and let's go. So Bree, who was down there and helps run that ministry, was telling us about this, and she said the first time she got pulled over in Mexico, that's what you do. You take out the money, you give them some pesos, you give them some American dollars, no ticket, you move on, and that's how it is. That's how the system is. Intimidation, trying to push. So she said then she got pulled over you know, another time, which is another story why Brie keeps getting pulled over in Mexico. But, well, I don't know all the details about that. So she got pulled over again. She said, why am I doing this? So she said, no, I'm not going to pay. Just give me the ticket. And the guy wouldn't give her the ticket. It's too much work. And this still is around today, this idea of intimidating, this idea of bullying, this idea of I'm just going to push you because you're smaller and I'm more powerful. And God is saying here, who are you? You're all saved and born again in Jesus Christ. Why do we have a pecking order? Why do we have this type of thing? No. We're not going to go around intimidating. We're not going to accuse falsely and be content. See, when you're content, you stop and realize this this isn't my home. And I'm going to repeat again. Why am I storing up treasures? Why am I building my kingdom here when there's an eternal focus on what I'm supposed to be doing? Other things that the Bible says. Love the widows. Love the orphans. First John, give to all that you see in need. We can go down the list of just practical stuff you're supposed to do. How does this tie into Acts 22? Because you're also supposed to share your testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for your life. That is the natural reaction to something that happened in your life that's supernatural. And as I was preparing this message, I just kept thinking, okay, that's just what we should be doing as Christians The Lord has so clearly touched us and changed our lives that we would want to go out and tell people, but we we don't. Now, I know some of you do. And I I hear the stories, and amen, it's neat. And everybody's got a different way on how they do that. Some of you attract people, and there's tracks at the back of a church. 
that you just carry tracks with you. My wife does that at, at, to waiters and waitresses at gas stations. Uh, you know, she pays and she gives them a tract. Some of you are handout track people. I'm not a real track guy. I'm more just start up a conversation, ask a lot of questions. It gets creepy until you say something, and then I start telling you about Jesus. Everybody does it differently. But the point is, it's supposed to happen because this is what the Lord's done in your life. And it's just that natural reaction to the supernatural. Just like it is of saying, I don't want to be greedy. I want to be content. I want to live for eternity. I want to live for the kingdom. I want to help the widows. I want to help the orphans. Not because I have to. Not because I'm earning my salvation. Not because of some legalism. But because this is what has happened in my life. Because the Lord has so clearly changed me. This is now how I want to live. Because of what the Lord is doing in my life. What happens if that's not there? Can you go with me now? Stay in Luke and go to Luke 6. Luke 6. I'm going to share some passages to you. And if you have a words of Christ in red Bible, these are the words of Jesus. And sometimes when I've shared these passages before, I get accused of uh, pushing and being legalistic, etc. It's like, no, let's, let's just take a look at what Jesus is saying here. Luke 6, verse 43. Luke 6, 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, or do they gather grapes from a bamboo bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. Right there. If you have been born again and saved in Christ, that will be revealed in your words, it will be revealed in your actions, it will be revealed in how you live. Because, verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. We should be able to look at each other and say, I see Jesus moving in you. What's the flip side? Verse 45, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Our actions, our words, our priorities, our lifestyle reveals our heart. If we sit here and say we are Christians and we call God Lord, look at verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That is a powerful verse right there. And we use that word a lot. We talk about the Lord a lot. And what Jesus is saying is, why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say? He goes one step further in Matthew 7. You don't have to turn there, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to them, I I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a powerful verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is not some message to try to scare you or to spur you on. This is an honest message that I think we need to do every now and then to stop and say, hey, we're here this morning on a Sunday because we have desired to grow and go deeper in the Lord, and you're here. Amen. Thank the Lord. What does it really look like to live it? What does it really look like to go out and do it? See, it says in James, faith without works is dead. And let me repeat again, this is not works to save you. This is not works because you have to. It's because I have been so supernaturally changed by Jesus Christ, it changes how I live. 
Now, Jesus' own words are saying there's a lot of people. I want you to think about this. There's a lot of people that call me Lord, that are actually doing things. Let's look at their spiritual resume. Prophesied, cast out demons, done wonders. And Jesus says, I don't know you. That is something to really chew on and think about. Paul goes a step further in Corinthians. He says, examine yourselves, test yourself. Are you really Christians? It's something that we're supposed to look at and stop and say, am I really living it? Now, how does this have to deal with Acts 22? Because I could have just started out the message by saying, we're going to read Paul's testimony. And hey, guys, you have been touched by Jesus Christ. So go out there and tell other people about Jesus. And you'd be like, oh, okay. But the reality is, if you are here this morning and he is your Lord and you have been touched by Jesus, the natural reaction to that supernatural event is, I, I do want to tell other people about it. Now, we can get into little subpoints of it makes me nervous, I'm afraid to say the wrong thing, I don't want to mess it up, and those are all little subpoints. The main point, though, is there's a heart's desire to see other people get saved because I believe in the reality and the eternity of hell. And I realize what that is, and I don't want anybody to go there. Because if I am born again and saved, therefore, it is. My heart is now supposed to be in line with the heart of Christ. And the heart of Christ is, he desires no one to go to hell. We can go through all the verses. It says in Peter that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish. Ezekiel comes right out and says, and that God says, I have no desire in the death of the wicked. I have no joy in the death of the wicked. If you are here this morning and you believe that God is some God that actually enjoys seeing people in hell for eternity, you're completely misunderstanding the Bible. That's not the God we serve. And he chooses to use us to go represent him to the world. And we need to be purposely minded to say, this is the type of person I want to be. And not only when it comes to sharing our faith and sharing our actions and our lifestyle and what we do and how we live. I think there's so many of us that we do say, Lord, Lord. And then we just kind of say, yeah, but I'm going to do what I want. And I think it's good to stop every now and then and stop and say, first off, is he Lord? Because before we can get to sharing our faith in Acts 22, we got to ask, are you saved? And when I ask, are you saved, this is not some question to make you squirm and say, okay, James wants to do an altar call so we can have a lot of people come forward. No, I'm just really sincerely asking, are you saved? If you're saved, amen, let's move on. But if you're not, we got a deeper issue there. I believe that every believer should be able to stop and know that they're saved. I believe that. If they don't know they're saved, that makes a concern for me. First, John has written that you can have the confidence to know that you're in Christ. And I want you to have that confidence. Remember what it says in Ephesians 5. Marriage and salvation are intertwined, meaning that they're symbolic of each other. In Ephesians 5, he said, the way I want to show the world salvation is by the picture of a husband and wife in marriage. That's what he wanted to do. So therefore, my marriage to Dawn is supposed to be a picture of, of salvation. That I love her like Jesus, she respect, honor, submits, and the way we love each other is supposed to represent that to the world. So if marriage is a picture of salvation, imagine you started coming out to church. You have met me. You did not ever meet my wife. My wife comes in with our five boys, and I'm talking to her, and you come up and say, oh, James, is this your wife? I've always wanted to meet her. And I would stop and look at you and say, I, th- I mean, I think she's my wife. 
I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, I think she's my wife. I think so. You would think, I mean, you already do think things about me, but you would say that's really, that's a whole nother level of strange. He doesn't even know if that's his wife. Why? I see you with her all the time. Those are your kids. I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think we're married. I do. But, guys, I'm not picking, and, and know my heart. I see sometimes Christians respond to that question about salvation that way. Are you saved? I, I mean, I think I am. I mean, I, I, mean, I hope I am. I, I mean, there's a time where I, whoa, 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 whoa. I want you to know that you are saved and that you know what Jesus Christ did for you. So that way, when you walk out of this church, you have the confidence. Because if you don't have the confidence you're saved, guess what? You're not going to go tell anybody else. Because if you don't know, how are you supposed to express that to somebody else? And I think we need to stop every now and then and say, I call you Lord. Are you my Lord? Because I really want people to have confidence. I think one of the worst things I see is somebody who has a, a pseudo relationship with the Lord, doesn't know where they're at really with Christ. There is not the joy and peace that they could have. I hope you can answer I'm saved, and I know I am. How do we know we're saved? Because there was a moment where I stopped and said, Lord, I'm yours. Some people know the day, the hour, the moment. Some people know the season. I just want you to know that you know. I know that it was in the fall of 1993 in that White House by the bank in Hamler. Jim Krieger was teaching. He gave an altar call. He talked about the reality of hell. And I said, I hear about hell. I finally understand hell. I don't want to go to hell. So I want to be saved. Learned later in the book of Jude, some are saved by fear. That was me. Now, 25 years later, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still trying. But I know what happened that day. And I want you guys to be able to know, because as we get now finally into Acts 22, about Paul sharing his testimony, I want you guys to have the confidence to be able to look at somebody and say, listen, I'm not perfect, but I know Jesus Christ, and I know what he did for me. And then you can walk in that confidence of that as well. As you get to Acts 22, the testimony has three parts. And really, every testimony has three parts. The first part is, what was it like before you knew Christ? How did you come to know Jesus and know you needed salvation? And what has your life been like since then? That, that's really what it is. What was it like before you knew Christ? How did you come to the point of knowing you needed to be saved? And what has your life been like afterwards? Now, let's talk about a few points here. Two words, both begin with the G, the double Gs. Don't glorify your past and don't glorify your past. That's what people do. We glorify and we glorify our past and sometimes that becomes the preeminent part of the testimony. And the preeminent part of the testimony is Jesus Christ. I've heard people give testimonies of like, oh, let me tell you. Every Friday night, we used to go out and do this and this and this. And this was my lifestyle. And it was so much fun. And then I met Jesus. It's like, what type of testimony is that? It's not like you have the best life ever. And then you met Jesus. No, don't glorify it and don't glorify it. I see sometimes people trying to do the shock testimony. Every testimony is basically the same. You were on a train heading straight to hell, and Jesus Christ saved you. Now, some of you may have been closer to the front of the train going to hell, but you still were all on the train going to hell. And so just because you were in the caboose and the other guy was in the front of the engine, you're still on the same train, same, same train heading to hell, and Jesus Christ saved you. 
Paul does a great job here at the first five verses of making his past relatable in the sense of, let me tell you, well, before I got saved, and let's read what happens, verse 1 of uh, Acts 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, he, they kept all the more silent. I just want to remind you, this is the group that was just beating him, trying to kill him. Verse 3. I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamil, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Straightforward. Doesn't glorify his past. Doesn't glorify his past. He says, listen, he's talking to Jews. Guys, I'm a Jew just like you. This is where I was born. This is where I was raised. I was brought up a Pharisee. I was brought up in the strictness of this. Verse 4, I persecuted the way. Please remember Christianity was known as the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So he says, listen, I was where you were at. I used to come to this temple. I used to worship here. I used to offer sacrifices. And just like you want to kill me, For being a Christian. I used to want to kill people for being a Christian. And if you don't believe me, verse 5, go ask the high priest. Go ask the council. Because they're the ones that gave me the letters to do this. That's my past. Not glorified. Not glorified. But that's the reality of it. This is what I was like before I came to know Christ. I don't know what your past is. But you want to be able to present it quickly, efficiently, and effectively. And say, this is what I used to be like. Then what happens? Verse 6. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. This is where we get the phrase that you saw the light. This is what it is. How did you get saved? I told you mine. Heard Jim teach on hell, the reality of it. I didn't want to go to hell. What led you to the point of realizing the eternity of heaven and hell and needing Jesus Christ? Understand that and be able to present that. And when I say this word, don't take it the wrong way. Present it eloquently. I'm not saying you're the world's greatest public speaker, but you're able to say eloquently my life before, how I met Jesus, and what happened afterwards. If you look here from verses 1 through 21, if you would just read this through straight through, you're talking what, a minute or two minutes? You know, we had a group come out a couple years ago just to kind of help give some tools on on sharing the gospel. And they talk about this idea of the one-minute testimony, where you're just able to eloquently say, this is what happened in my life. Plant the seed and see what happens and go from there. I've heard people give very long testimonies, and some of them are awfully amazing. I've also heard testimonies that go on for 40 minutes, and 35 of it is their past, and five minutes of, and by the way, I met Jesus, and now I do this. Make sure Christ gets the preeminence. And this is what Paul does here. He makes it clear, I met Jesus. Verse 10, he is now my Lord, and I am now serving and following him because of what he did for me. 
And I think it's so important to clearly represent that. So now that you've talked about how you met him, what happens next? What has happened in your life to be different? Verse 12, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up to him. Brother Saul. We kind of use that word brother and sister a lot in Christianity. We kind of throw it around a lot. I got a uh, pastor friend that I do a lot of ministry with, and he just admits he can never remember anybody's name. So he calls every Christian woman a sister and every Christian man a brother. He just doesn't have to remember any names. And if you're working with him, be like, brother, could you grab that for me? Sister, could you grab that for me? Just telling you it works really well. Brother Saul, though, here, verse 13, can you imagine what went through Paul's mind? Remember, he has a name change in a little bit here from Saul to Paul. There's a oneness. There's a relationship. We are now the body of Christ, brother Saul. Verse 14, he said to him, then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of who what you have seen and heard. Know his will, verse 14. His will. See, part of salvation is I no longer live for myself. Now, that's a long process, guys. I'm just telling you right now, it is not you get saved and then the next moment you're like, Lord, everything is yours. We may verbally say that it's a long process of dying to ourselves and dying to things, but it's an understanding from the beginning of verse 14. It's all about his will. I see people claim to get saved and they go out and keep living the exact same lifestyle, the exact same mannerisms, and it's like, well, what did he save you from then? Because you obviously were perfect beforehand because you're living the exact same life. Now, once again, I'm not preaching a legalism or works-based salvation. We have made a case here biblically that when you are born again and saved, your life changes. That's what it means to call him Lord. And so when those changes happen, you start seeing what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what happens in verse 14? Know his will. Verse 14, hear the voice of his mouth. I start doing what he wants me to do. I start listening to what he wants me to do. For you will be his witness to all men of whom you have seen and heard. You are saved for the glory of God. And how do you represent the glory of God? Because in John 15, it says God is glorified when we produce fruit for him. So I am saved for God's glory. And then I go out and live my life to produce fruit for him to continue his glory. Because I want to be his witness. Verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? I like Ananias. Okay, Paul, get up and do something. What are you going to do? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I believe baptism is a wonderful step in your walk in relationship with Christ after you're saved. In fact, we're praying about doing a baptism coming up here on June 24th. It's not finalized yet. But if you're here and you're interested in getting baptized, come talk to me. We'd love to get you signed up for that. Verse 17, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. We see what his life was like before he met Christ. We see him meeting Christ. And now we see what a life looks like after he knows Christ. That's a great testimony. 
And I just encourage you, and if you may stop and say, okay, that, that's not me, I'm not eloquent that way, I struggle with words, then this is part of your prayer focus for the week. Lord, when the subject comes up, and when I have an opportunity to share, I want to be able to confidently say, this is what Jesus Christ did for me. So I could represent you to the world because I am a chosen vessel of yours to do your will. Please remember, Christianity is not Jesus saving you so you can go live the life you want. He's saving you for his glory, his purpose. And if you think that sounds harsh, please know that his glory and his purpose is better than what you could ever imagine for yourself. True joy and fulfillment will always come in doing his will, not your will. That's where the true joy and fulfillment. The reason we battle this, excuse me, and the reason we kind of fight this, because we think what I want is going to make me happier than God's perfect will. And some of us will battle that to the day we die. The sooner we can die to that idea and just accept his will, Man, that's where the joy and the peace really come. Some of you here today have been fighting this for years. You still think your plan is the best plan. The Lord says, my plan is the best plan, which will bring you joy and peace. I just want to remind you, we call him Lord. What does that really mean? What does it really mean to say, Lord, Lord? Because we read in Matthew 7, there's a lot of people saying, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I don't know you. I don't want you to leave here today without the confidence of knowing who he is and what he can do in your life. Because I want you to go out of this church today being purposeful, saying, okay, Lord, I'm open. What does it look like? And if that sounds a little scary to you, nah, it's exciting. Because once you get past that point of I'm no longer in charge, man, there's a freedom. I'm no longer in charge. That's great. Lord, lead me, guide me, take care of me. The sovereignty of God is a beautiful thing. And when you can trust in that, you know he'll lead you into all truth. Worship team, if you want to come forward. Right. Lord, we're throwing around.